You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. These are edited audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of the paid supporters that make this show possible. You can get more info and follow my updates on all the content and open source I'm creating at patreon.com slash brettfisher. That link, as well as all the links of this episode are available in the show notes and on this podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. This week, we're talking all about WSL2. That's the Windows Subsystem for Linux version 2, and especially in Windows 11, where we're getting some nice new features. And I have a special guest on the show because it's the second time this year that Nuno Ducarmo has been on the show. He's a Docker captain and a whole bunch of other things that we'll get into. <laughs> so if you're a developer, an operator, a sysadmin, or just a Linux hobbyist, you'll definitely want to check out this episode of WSL2 features in Windows 10 and what's coming up in Windows 11. Now on with the show. I'm excited this week because now we have a guest for the second time this year, which I think is a first in 2021. This is Nuno. Hi, everyone. He's the Captain Corsair, and you've seen him on here before. We've talked WSL2. He's a Docker captain. He's a Microsoft MVP. He's a CNCF ambassador. He's like the trifecta. He's like the EGOT of container community. He has all the credentials. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate it. And hey, I, I, I made it first then. I'm the first one to come by twice. Yes. Well, in the same year. I've had Nermal on before. And maybe Nermal is actually part of that club too, because now I think about it. Yeah, he did, he I, did. I guess only three times. But yeah. <laughs> he's, hopefully he's okay, not watching okay. right now, because he'll be like, what? Do you don't remember we just did it? <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again. I love WSL2. I am not even a Windows daily user. I have Windows all over my house, but it's not something that I, I live on a Mac normally most days, but I wish I had it. Like I miss it. I want it. Apple sure. will probably never give it to us. You spend a lot of your time, like you have a blog about this. You spend a lot of your time talking about WSL, your demos earlier this year. We're going to put these in the show notes for those that didn't watch it. But that's a great video of just talking about WSL 2 on Windows 10 and like going through some demos. And that was basically if you are on this live stream now, everyone, you can go back and watch that episode. Just look up our names basically on YouTube and you find that video. Yeah. But for the, th those that didn't see that video, they weren't here six months ago, right. they missed that show. Give us the context of what this acronym even is and why do we care? Right, yeah. So the very beginning is like WSL, Windows Subsystem for Linux. Actually, that's Linux running on Windows, but for some marketing and trademark repose, Windows had to come first. So that's why it's uh, the, the subsystem is the Linux because that's Linux subsystem on Windows, but then it's inverse due to yeah, I guess trademarks anyway. So it it was born back in or created at least back in 2016, 15, 16 around that when the ins Windows insiders also started, and. One of the first Windows Insiders had this WSL. So how to have, it It was called Bash on Linux, by the way, and Bash on Windows, sorry, Bash on Windows. And then it came out of nowhere. Nobody was really, say, expecting it, at least the community. 
and Rich Turner, so the first person at Microsoft that to lead actually the, the program for WSL, made, made this demo where he just launched Ubuntu, does an app update, an app upgrade, installs an application, an Elf application on modified Linux application on Windows and launched it. And everyone was like, what the hell just happened? Like Elf froze that day, <laughs> right? And then Bash on Windows was built together actually with Ubuntu. And then it it became WSL 1 a few years. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing like a, a very speedy introduction here. But it from WSL 1, that was the user space of Linux inside Windows, but still he had some limitations. So there's plenty of videos, there's books actually from friends that have coming out about WSL that explained that, actually what were the limitations we, and what are the limitations with WSL1, which was more like a, a translation layer from what Linux commands we are running, and it translates it into uh, system calls about for the Windows kernel. It means that, of course, because of the differences of the kernel, how they are built, but also how People forgot that Windows was our NT kernel. That's still what we have today, right? So it was built back in the day where Unix was king, right? So we had like the Unix tooling for Windows, or I, I don't remember the name now, but we had already something like that. Like the that Linux, was a Linux, Linux subsystem? Something like that. No, Unix it was system. Unix. 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 Oh, yeah, uh, Unix, Unix subsystem. Tool. Yeah, yes. I remember and, that. I mean, there's some syscalls that might have never been used by how do you say, by by Windows itself, but they were built in because it was really to match actually the compatibility between Unix and Windows. Uh, yeah. To some, some extent. So now fast forward, these calls, right? These system calls were already there. They, they were not used, but they were already there. Yeah. So when you look like the compatibility list of system calls, there's like maybe 80 or 90% even that are actually implemented for WSL1. But then the last bits are really like what separates a Linux kernel from a Windows kernel. Yeah. So that's the WSL1. It was. I, that's, I looked at it as like, uh, it was great for getting started. Like it was super fast. It did, did what you needed to do. It was easy. It was way easier than installing a VM. But then the minute you tried to do anything advanced, like run MySQL or Win or Docker or whatever, yeah. it, it started the to just... The moment that you yeah. needed to work with sockets, it was the end. Yeah. There was some, let's say, there was some acts to get actually Docker CLI to connect through a pipe, actually, yep. to the Docker engine working on Mobi VM, which was the back, back in the day, the, yeah. the name, right? For the Docker desktop, right? So we could, we could do something like that. But again, that was, I say a hack in the good sense, right? But yeah, it, it felt something hacky. That you yeah. Need, yeah, it's something that you need to actually put in place. You have to configure and stuff like that. So when Microsoft then announced WSL2, so again, a bit fast forward, mm -hmm. WSL2 now is running on top of the virtualization capabilities of uh, Windows, okay? So think Hyper-V, but it's called really virtualization platform, okay? And this virtualization platform, what it does is like it allows micro VMs, if you want, to, to be just created 
and one of those is for WSL. So now who says VM says also a little bit a shift in the, let's say the application or the paradigm, right? It means like before WSL1, you can just use it everywhere. Now WSL2, you need to have a computer with a CPU that is uh, virtual virtualization enabled, right? It could be AMD, so I am running AMD, I will show afterwards, but it can be ARM by uh, nowadays, I think, and there's definitely Intel, right? But you need to add the virtualization capabilities. Now, because it's a virtualization, micro VM, but still virtualized environments, well, now we have the full Linux kernel that can be loaded. And now all the system calls are like VirtualBox, for example. I know that you use a lot in your courses, for example. Yeah. But uh, imagine that you have a Linux that you install on VirtualBox. The kernel part, I, I don't say the full environment, that's important now, but just the kernel part, well, that's a kernel that's exactly the same that is loaded inside WSL2. And yeah. now we have pipes, now we have sockets. The, the pipes we have also, sorry, we have sockets, we have maybe IOs and stuff like that that are a bit different. Yeah, VirtualBox has been like the go-to solution for everyone for decades. Yeah. And it always felt to me very sysadmin, like raw, right? You're like, okay, I want to get a Bash shell so I can run... I want to install something through apt and I want to run it. I want to run MySQL yeah. in Linux. And and then you're like all of a sudden as a developer or just a hobbyist or whatever, like you're down this rabbit hole with that thing of configuring networking and figuring out you have to create virtual machine properties and understand all those settings, which I still don't understand all those settings and IDE true. versus blah blah blah, like all these different true, things. True, true. And then you have to go find an ISO of your chosen distribution and then install that through a very lengthy process that probably takes at least 30 minutes. It's just, it's crazy. It's actually, that's still yeah. how you use it today, really. And it's just not, it could be so much better. It, it, it's perfect for what it's meant to be, a raw utility for exactly. creating exactly. A, any VM you'd ever want to create. But that's not, that's not typically what a Windows person wants to do. No, no, ergo. true. And that, that, that's the funny part because I, like in 2008, I was like, I'm a Windows guy at heart and from the very beginning 20 years ago now in my career i started actually in the l desk and doing support uh, on-site support and going through really let's say the echelon of uh, support on windows and then in 2008 for some reasons my company had to outsource and the outsourcer was hp and i went to hp but in hp they didn't need myself into the position that I was and they actually allowed me to be a unix administrator for HP, UX, and Solaris, Sun Solaris back in the day. And now, HP, UX, you forget, because that's Titanium, that's other CPUs, you cannot have it. But Sun Solaris, I could install it. And the VirtualBox, just to just for the part of the, let's say, operator, more likely, is like, you install VirtualBox, that's easy. But then, the first time, you have to, okay, download the ISO. Okay, now load the ISO. Now go through the installation process. And now you reach some parts of, depending on which OS you are, right? Nowadays it's way better, but you reach the part of file system. And I was totally lost. Okay, a file system. Fi the, the terminology, I, I'm not English speaking, right? I'm French speaker or Portuguese speaker, but I'm not English by default. And for me, file system was like, okay, in Windows you have C. 
Is it the file system? Well, yes, it's NTFS behind the scenes. The NTFS is the file system. But we don't see, let's say, the disk portion. And now you have this file system that you have created, like slash etc, slash, uh, slash itself, so for root, slash ohm, slash var, slash uh, USR, and so on. And you like, oh my gosh, what is happening here, <laughs> right? Right. So I, t sorry to not go too much in depth there, but for me, it's really like the virtual box works exactly for what the purpose it is. And it's like to install full-blown, that's the really important now terminology here that I will compare, but full-blown OS on top of Windows, where WSL2 is only Linux-based OSs. So VirtualBox, you can have NetBSDs, I guess. So, but is WSL2 is only Linux for now loads the kernel as his own in its system. That's the important part also. And by default, you did not have graphics. When WSL2 came out, there was no graphic. You had to have like the, what you call a display server, right? X server uh, that was running on the Widon side. And then it will like, you could show the the GUI applications, but that was not the target of WSL. Right. GUI right. applications it was for years. Yeah. V very hacky and yeah, not does, doesn't look pretty, doesn't yeah, and and it, it it's funny cuz everyone wants to take this to its eventual for, you know, the, the final thing is Windows and Linux on the same machine always running together, run any app. I know n next is I want to run an Android app. Like we keep seeing these simulators and things and I feel like we're eventually this is going down that road of it just allows Windows to run free anything like and make it seem yeah. like it's really running on your host machine so wso2 we have, we have some questions by the way these are all very there's a basically exactly what you're talking about right now someone asked what would be the best wsl1 or wsl2 which would be the best suitable case it really depends today on what you want to achieve and what you want to do wsl1 believe it or not is great like is great even with limitations is great for several let's say topics like the ones that you want just to develop for example and you don't want to have too much and i will enter a little bit right now there's a pain point is like the the file system the performance from yeah. wsl1 wsl2 but wsl1 how it's integrated because it, it runs directly on top of Windows file system, so there's nothing virtualized. It really runs the top. Then the for some cases, I think there's uh, plenty of let's say, examples on on the net. But there was like some cases where the file system was much more performant running WSL one than WSL two. Now WSL one because of the file system limitations, right? Sorry, the Cisco limitations. WSL2 is better for Docker, definitively, and we will enter this discussion just uh, in a bit, and I have also a small demo. And every everything cloud-native, if you think Kubernetes and everything, you will need, need right. WSL2. Right. You cannot just run WSL1. For your, I mean, if you just want to replace like Putty, right, just to SSH into servers, to SSH somewhere else, where you just need your tools, where you just need your, sorry for the just, I, I, but you need your tools, you need your, how do you say, you need your scripts, right? right. Your administrator scripts. WSL1 does the job. 
So you need and so does if your you job really well. That's a great that's a great point. I everybody thumbs up on the video if you've used Putty. Like a Putty is one of those things where if you've ever had to use another Linux machine and you're on Windows, you probably either discovered Putty by searching or the tutorial you were watching says, "Oh yeah, go use Putty." I started like my, my first experience with SSH. Well, okay, I'm old. So before SSH, we were all using Telnet and Telnet wasn't encrypted, but that was how I like when I first did shell into Unix machines, it was always Telnet. But I think my first SSL experience was on Windows 95, maybe, or something like that. And Putty was first out whenever I don't remember exactly when it launched. But and now that I've been on a Mac or a system with a native bash shell or a ZSH shell, and I use SSH that way, Putty actually feels weird to me because of the way it's a GUI first, and then it gives you a GUI for each yeah. shell and all that stuff. So it's funny that you point that out because I've never considered WSL1 as really the simple shell, give me yeah. access to some scripts. I, all I'm really going to do is just run a couple of basic things in bash and then everything else I'm going to remote. So it's like the sysadmin remoting tool. Because exactly. yeah, on my iPad, I have something called uh, Blink Shell, which I, if you're using an iOS device, you ever need to use SSH, get Blink. Blink is the best. It's not, I don't think it's free, but it's not much money. It's a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely the best full screen shell. And the only thing it's in it, it basically gives you this full shell of but the only commands that are in it are like ls, make dirt, you know, it's very basic stuff, and then SSH and mosh, which are all you need. So anyway, yeah. WSL2. But yeah, but just to, to, to end up like with WSL1 SSH parts, there's one part, okay, I'll bind it with WSL2 then. There's a part that you still have access to the Windows file system. And running a shell on WSL1 it means that you are running a shell on a local machine. When you run Putty, you are connecting, and then you have to maybe SCP, so you have a WinSCP, or maybe FileZilla, I don't know, or even Putty, I think they have like an SCP connect a small application. Like WSL1, you just have your tools, and you just install them, and that's done. To convert SSH keys, for example, because on the when you create a Putty key, it comes in a, in certain format. I don't remember the format, but so, sometimes you need to to transfer this format into Open SSH format, and then you have to run some commands. So here you can install Open SSH on WSL one. It works actually, and you can run the tooling. So anyway, so back now to WSL two. But where the bridge happens is like WSL2 needed to actually take everything that made WSL1 great, okay? That was really like the first thing that they had in mind. We need to keep the interoperability, interop, between the Linux user lens, user space, sorry, with the Windows user space and the Windows file system. And somehow, we're getting there now, but somehow also the Windows networking because WSL1 has access to localhost Windows. But remember that WSL2 now is running, even though it's a micro VM, optimized VM, it's still a VM. It's still using then Hyper-V networking first. Now where Microsoft were, let's say, very smart, of course, to doing that, but it's like they bound the networks kind of uh, between the, or they provide the ability to open ports between WSL2 directly into the Windows. 
So whenever you run something, and we will see it afterwards, I, I, I will just do a, a very small demo about that, but kind of cool, is like it's opening a port, you don't see it. Because when you are a developer now, right? So let's move just to the developer part. I am no real developer, let's say. I never really develop. But the developers, when I go to a tutorial, is like, do this, so follow this, uh, how to develop your application. Now you run, I don't know, like an OGS server or a Go server or something like that. And now you go to what? You open your browser and you go to localhost, colon, maybe a certain port, and then uh, a pass or not. And then it will show you something, right? So you expect, you using WSL, to actually potentially have the same. I want to open my browser, Windows browser, put localhost on the URL and reach actually what I'm trying to test, port 8080, for example, okay, my, my application. So that becomes even more true when we enter Docker because when you develop and you run on containers, right, so you export the ports and everything, but now the ports, if you export it, let's say with Windows containers or on Linux, you export the port, so you know that you do localhost, colon the port, and now you know that your port is open, because. but even though it's running on your container. Well, here, by having the ports mapping automatically between WSL2 and Windows, it made possible actually to have Docker and Docker desktop nowadays using leveraging WSL2 and for the end user that we are, right? It's totally transparent. You run your application, you develop, you create your container. Then when you run your application, you export the port and then you can use the local host. And that's saying like that is just, let's say, oh, it's normal. For me, it's really, ma yeah, magic in a sense, right? Because it's all the layers of abstractions and let's say connectivity that needs to have something working as if it was in your computer. But still you're leveraging powerful tools and powerful workflows using Docker. Yeah, there's a question that's related to this. And Andreas is asking about, is it possible to send a ping or something like that from Windows into a container? And what we're talking about here is that, yes, if you're using, not ping specifically, but if you're using a, a Docker desktop, so you step one, get Docker desktop, it will enable WSL2. Yeah. And then when you publish a port, whether that's in Docker Run or Docker Compose or the, the, even Kubernetes, which is built in a Docker desktop, those, when you publish those ports, they will then be on localhost that port when you're on your Windows machine. Now, that doesn't mean you can use ping, which let's not get, we're not going to get in too much into it, but ping isn't actually TCP or UDP. It's a different protocol. So technically ping doesn't really work from Windows into a container. At least I don't think. Um, that's my understanding. That like, I would have to get into... No, it, it won't, yeah, it won't work like that because the abstractions is you have a dual NAT, okay? A yeah. dual network translation. You have the first translation, which is WSL itself. So if you look at your IP of Windows, let's say it's, I don't know, like 172, blah, blah, blah. Now you look at the IP of your WSL, already is different, okay? 
So the addresses yeah. are different already. Now, when you put Docker on top of it, Docker creates <clears> also <throat> its own network, like the 10 dot blah, 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 okay? And now, let's say, normally non-rootable, but you have like different, let's say, layers of networking. So ping from your side to a container itself might not work. Maybe there's a use case, I don't know. But normally, like Brett just said, is more like you run your application and your application is listening on certain ports. And now from Windows, you can reach these certain ports. That's the important step. Yeah. So the ping was probably a bad example. They probably didn't want to do ping anyways. I'm going to, I'm going to assume, I'm going to assume that, that they didn't really specifically need ping from Windows. Because probably what we're talking about is like a common case here is I, like, there's some really great Postgres and MySQL GUIs, right? Hmm. But I don't want to run Postgres and MySQL on my Windows machine. I'd rather run that in a container, easy mode. So spin those up in a container, make sure you publish those ports, and then all the GUIs and things on your machine, on your Windows machine that are running natively in Windows, will easily be able to talk to those. Um, also, watch our other videos, take my course, that'll answer all those questions. True. The other question that we had very early on, I think with the first question in with Peloton, what's the latest on Windows dropping all their server architecture and moving to Linux? <laughs> so it's a little bit of a subject change. We don't have to go deep yeah. into it, but what, are your, what is your thought on that? Windows Server is kicking and alive first. So they are not dropping, let's say, the <clears throat> Windows Server. It's actually they are almost doubling down on it that's why there's something like how you can how i can confirm it let's say is that if you look all the work that they are trying to put worker nodes for now at least but worker nodes on kubernetes which is let's say a little bit the trendy application and the must-go application nowadays and the environment so you learn docker first you learn your containers then you move to kubernetes to a, let's say a bigger environment now when you reach there well all the work that was being done between docker and windows to bring actually windows containers now you will have exactly the same on kubernetes okay there's other protocols there's other let's say workflows and everything that the node needs to actually be able to perform to be Kubernetes compatible as a node, right? So this now is what we have Microsoft doing, and they are really helping the, let's say, the broader communities about Kubernetes applications and so on, bringing also like this Windows flavor and Windows uh, Server 2022 is great. Now, with all that said, one important point, I am one of the first, let's say, in the world that wants WSL 2, that's important, not WSL, but WSL 2 on Windows Server. That happened just for a small amount of time during some, let's say, what they called, Technical not the preview, dev, or? but yeah, no, it's, I don't remember now, but it's not the long-term server, it's like the short, there's the, a term, like the, the semi-annual, semi-annual. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So the semi-annual, exactly. So they brought uh, on 2019 server, they brought WSL2 for a, a small amount of time. But now, yeah, uh, now going forward, we do not have WSL2 on Windows Server 2022, for example, and not going, for now at least, not going. Microsoft decided that WSL2 at least, and WSL in general, but WSL are really, or should be really more targeted at developers, okay? 
So that's the that's just like the small. Be careful. Don't expect too much about WSL2 on server. That won't happen on the short term. So WSL20, sorry, Windows Server 2022 is not having it for now. Maybe it will come with the feature if really someone complains about it or really needs it. But with all the work that Windows is putting on let's say, on having Windows nodes really about Kubernetes. I'm more speaking about Kubernetes right now, right? But about Kubernetes, then you don't need WSL2 on Windows Server. If you need something Linux on a server, then install Linux directly. And the the phrasing was also like, I won't take the server, but if you go to Azure, now it's a, let's say it's a known almost meme is that Azure runs way more Linux servers than actually Windows servers. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a fan of that decision too, because WSL always seemed like a developer and sysadmin tool to me. And for Microsoft to say Linux is now running in this on a server, I feel like that is a whole world of automation and DevOps and and system deployment that once you say that, the community of people think, oh, well, basically, this is how I should run my Linux now on my Windows servers, sure. right? I have a Hyper-V box in my closet, a Windows server running Hyper-V 2019 edition, and I run a bunch of different VMs in there, Windows 10 VMs, other Windows servers, a bunch of Linux machines. I run them all in Hyper-V, mm-hmm. and that's how a lot of Windows admins do it, right? There's actually still a lot of people out there that use Hyper-V as their virtualization platform, like VMware is not 100% of the world. And for those people, when I heard that little, when they went through that little timeline where they said, yeah, it's going to work on server, I thought, this is kind of weird because it's not really got the system centers, infrastructure, and all these things that real admins need to run Linux on Windows Server. So what is it, right? So I actually, I approve that decision. Let's not confuse and muddy the waters. Let's make it a, de- exactly, it's a dev, exactly. dev and sysadmin yeah. user thing. It's not a thing for automation on servers in the data center. Yeah, That's the, what Hyper-V is for. Yeah, so the problem is, not the problem, but what I had in mind was more like back in the day, I was running like Kubernetes control planes because it's not running on Windows. So the control plane, so the let's say the main server of Kubernetes needs to be running on Linux. Now when you are in maybe a company that is only Microsoft and Windows based, like mine currently, uh, the thing is, it was like, okay, WSL is seen as a feature. So I can leverage both words again, still being that the Windows server has his own backup, is on the domain. It's really integrated with uh, all our deployment processes and yeah, and, and other stuff, right? So it's a Windows environment. Now, if I could put like, a feature, let's say like Hyper-V, but instead of Hyper-V now it's called WSL2. And on WSL2, I can run a control plane of Kubernetes. Then I could have Kubernetes on premises, maybe for the servers still running on server, right? But could be running there. So that was kind of my use case. But then, like you said, the problem is like, when you try, (coughs) when you have an hammer, you do an hammer and then you give someone a, a screwdriver and they will try to hammer with it, right? So the thing is like the WSL2 on server might have gone really wrong for certain persons and they told, okay, I don't have the performance that I want, which it might be true. I cannot do this. I cannot do the other. And I know if you want to run Linux workloads 
on production, please yeah. run on Linux directly, yeah. not on a feature. Yeah. But anyway, so that's going a bit tangent here, but that was... Yeah. All right. A couple more quick questions for you. And then we're, let's yeah. get to some Windows 11 WSL2 uh-huh. demos, because I definitely want to see some of that GUI action. I'm going to wrap up, though. I, I love that the WSL1 versus 2 discussion. Like, I didn't actually expect us to go there, but I'm glad we had it. I, I My mental checklist now is, I love the way you framed it. I would, I personally, as a developer or a sysadmin, I would default to WSL2 in all cases, except if I knew I never, I was not a developer, I never needed the full apt get experience or you know centos experience or whatever yum mm-hmm. i'm using and i yeah. just needed some basic tooling like ssh and i didn't maybe there's some battery savings there by not doing wsl2 maybe you don't have to have the full kernel so there's yeah, maybe, exactly. maybe yeah. simplicity maybe a little storage space savings but really honestly people like i don't know just do wsl2 that's kind of my that's my take but so here's a great question how do you get started in wsl2 what is the path to land a wsl do you need to know about vms and virtualization like right so gladfully nowadays no let me yeah, then jump to share screen and i think it will be a bit better yeah i kind of feel like that's the point of wsl is that if you wanted to learn about virtualization and like manually installing Linux and what all that experience is about, go get VirtualBox or Hyper-V and create a VM, right? That's the standard. But WSL was like a, let's make it super easy to give someone who doesn't care about all that stuff, who's not trying to emulate everything exactly like Linux and have complete control over all the hardware in a, just give them a a simple little Linux machine. Yeah, exactly. The, The thing was really to be very easy to start with, okay? So until the last update of Windows 10 2004 that we have today, but the latest feature updates actually, the path was like, you have to go to the features, you have to install two components, which is the visualization platform, plus WSL2, the feature itself. And finally, you would like go to, let's say you could like reboot and then you could have a WSL2. But now WSL2, and that's another important step here, WSL2 is not a Linux distro. It's a feature, MicroVM, that is able to launch a Linux kernel, and now you still need to put something on top of it, okay? The distro itself, your Ubuntu, your OpenSUSE, your, let's say, Penguin from my friends, but if you go to the store, or you can even sideload what we call sideload distributions, like maybe Red Hat, maybe, okay, no more CentOS, but Rocky Linux or Alma Linux, that are the replacements, or others, who knows, right? I'm a clear Linux, or I was using a lot of clear Linux uh, at some point in time, and I had to sideload it because it's not on the store. So WSL, when we say like Microsoft changed also the mentality to be open, is not only, okay, they do open source and they are not here to destroy the community. I mean, that's open source. They cannot, right? But they are really keen on being open. Really, that's the real mentality. And don't take my word for it. Just look at the past five years or even now six or seven years that they tried really to be actors and not just say, having the bad uh, way of, oh, my God, is Microsoft, right? So let me not just go too much in there because, I'm again, I'm a Microsoft fan. 
All right, podcast fans. At this point in the YouTube Live, we went through a bunch of different demos, and some of those are hard to transcribe into a audio-only medium. So if you're interested at all in some of the details, then check out the podcast show notes. There's a link to the YouTube Live that you can fast forward to the demos. Now back to the questions we got from our audience. Uh, Anton's got a question. Is it possible to launch intensive GPU apps like Blender, for example? So uh, let me say it like that. I never tried it out, but Microsoft has... First of all, WSL is GPU enabled. So there's NVIDIA, AMD, Intel that have specific drivers for WSL. If you want to run actually GPU intensive, let's say intensive right. apps, for example, okay, like the applications that you run on on WSL can be installed there. Yeah, and this so is... that's how how far they, they they went with the integrations. Yeah, it's pretty amazing there, especially the driver stuff. Just the work of the drivers is that's a lot of work. And and to deliberately do that, which I still feel like running Linux applications through WSL and Windows is a super edge case. Like those of us all here, we're not the normal people, right? And so when you think of the billions of Windows installations, I don't know if there's a billion Windows 10. There probably is, I'm assuming. But yeah, if you think about the percentage of those that are going to use WSL2 and then the percentage of those that would ever mm -hmm. want to try to run something in a GUI in WSL2, like we're basically focused on this core audience of you know, geeks no, geeking out on, on, you know, devs and sysadmins and hobbyists that are just geeking yeah. out on this stuff. But I mean, no, there's, no, some interesting, there's some interesting applications here too, because this isn't this, I don't think this is this easy on Mac, right? So, cause on Mac, I still have to install X11 and do some things to make it all kind of work in Docker on Mac. This seems a right. lot easier. And I certainly don't think that I get uh, driver support, right? Because Apple's been largely silent on this whole, let's use containers or Linuxy things. I mean, you can run X11 stuff on Mac fine from the host, but the minute you want us to do it in a container, it's not the best case. This Related to that topic, by the way, it's a little bit of a topic change for you, but I just want to make sure we get all the questions answered that people are reaching out. Was yeah. Anton earlier, I didn't forget about you, asked about mounting drive speed and saying sometimes it's really, you know, Sometimes working with something like Mount C is extremely slow comparing to file system inside WSL2. Warning there for all of you that are ever thinking about doing this for development and talking about Docker in here, there's two things now that you should be moving yourself towards. The first one is you should be looking at putting all your source code. If you're going to be developing in Linux Docker containers, then putting your source code clones, putting those in the Linux file system, not on your host file system. But if you do that, you probably want an editor that can easily understand that and do that. So all of us, I mean, not everyone can switch to VS Code. We all have our own opinions. But mm. the world of developers is more rapidly moving to v Visual Studio Code than I've seen any other editor in the history of developer editors. Like everyone I know is using VS Code. Even diehards that were, I know I have colleagues that are diehard Vim people. I was diehard Vim and I find myself using VS Code more and more than just Vim because there's so much in it, including support natively for putting all your files inside of these Linux WSL2s and getting the native file performance out of them. Anyway, sorry, I know you have your own opinions on that. No, and, and again, that's that's perfect because if we forget for a second VS Code, then another big player in the world of IDE, which is JetBrain, they have actually integrated WSL with JetBrain. 
Great. And JetBrain is really working hard to get almost a, a VS Code, not almost, but getting the VS Code experience for JetBrains. And so for all the potentially Java developers that use JetBrains since ages, then, well, my friends, you are now served. Right. Yeah. So yeah. here, like Brett was saying, again, okay, let me let me do something like this. If what, I look at what, while you're I doing that know. real quick, before you type that, I just well, oh, but we're about okay. to end that subject, and I wanted to tell everybody because I totally forgot at the beginning of the episode. We're fine. I'm finally relaunching the podcast because it's we haven't had an episode updated on the podcast in a in a in a year, and that's all my fault. Our our team had a podcast editor, and then we we don't have that person anymore, so we had to take on that work ourselves. And for those of you that are watching, we do have a podcast version of this that's audio only, and now the episodes are going to start coming. Uh, ideally once a week. And the first one is from last week or two weeks ago, maybe, where we did a Visual Studio Code with GitHub Copilot, which was fascinating. And we had so much fun. (laughs) So I'm actually creating a clipped edited version, a Cliff Notes version of that for YouTube. And then we're going to, and we have a podcast version out coming, should be dropping today. So if you just go to brettfisher.com and click on podcast or look in your local, any, any of your podcast tools and just search for Brett Fisher, you should find that. Anyway, little blurb, shameless plug, Hello. because that highlights just the what's happening in the VS Code world. Like it is just becoming the tool, especially for DevOps, whereas not a lot of the other tools really focus on DevOps for editors. I feel like Visual Studio Code is finally making it like a first class citizen for the DevOps world, Terraform, Docker, Kubernetes, all the things inside there. Someone asked, uh, IntelliJ, does IntelliJ support this IDA? I don't actually know. I haven't used IntelliJ. IntelliJ supports what, sorry? I guess they're asking about supporting WSL, sounds like. Yes, yes. Oh, no, yes. I think JetBrains went for IntelliJ first. So I know they have like a a suite of applications, but the one that they, they, they wanted first was IntelliJ. Okay. Don't quote me on that, but I think if you look at JetBrain, if you look, uh, yeah, JetBrain WSL, you will see what uh, what they have. Yeah, not to go down too far down this rabbit hole, but I'm a Visual Studio Code fanboy because it runs everywhere, runs in a browser. You can run it yourself on a server. You can run it on Code Spaces, which, by the way, organizations just like yesterday, organizations and enterprises on GitHub.com can now use Code Spaces, which we couldn't use before. Um, and so it's everywhere. I mean, you can run it on anything. I, I yeah. run it in a browser on my iPad. It runs inside of WSL. You can run it from a container. It's just like, it's pervasive. Yeah, it's pervasive. And everyone's making add-ons for it. Everything you ever wanted to do, it seems like in an editor is now a project inside of Visual Studio <laughs> Code. I mean, I, you yeah. know, I feel sorry for all the companies that get have paid editors because I think, I don't see how they they can fight free in the future when the editor is just so pervasive and everywhere and updated constantly and has all the newest stuff. It's, I don't know how you well, compete if they with that. Don't, if they don't go for maybe Teams or IntelliJ, which is really the number one for Java development, maybe yeah. there's others like for other languages. <clears throat> but the problem is like when you have open source software, really, and you have that amount of developers around the world that want to use your the same editor and start building these really cool extensions, then yeah, then the other companies start to have a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's gonna be a tough market for them. I mean, and that's what I love about VS Code <laughs> is because it was always a compromise. It was like, well, I there's some great free free ones out there. Like we had Adam 
uh, obviously Notepad Plus, like they had all these other ones, Vim and Emacs, obviously. But it always felt like, yeah, there's these paid ones that are really great. Like so I still love Sublime Text, super fast. It can open yeah. up a five meg log file faster than any other editor I know, faster than Vim. And it's amazing. And I still pay for it. But I only really use it for that use case. <laughs> Everything else is VS Code. Right. All right. So we have some other questions real quick because I know we're running long. Yep. Anton asks, any news on, w- on FreeBSD and WSL2? None. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone wants it. Like everyone who knows BSD wants like the more the Unix type yeah. of, let's say, of OS. Unfortunately, how, how WSL, like I said, how WSL is, is that the kernel loaded inside the small micro VM is a Linux kernel, full stop. So even if you try to actually swap the kernel, put a FreeBSD kernel, but then the init system, and that one you cannot change it because it's really proprietary. Let's say that's the proprietary part here of uh, WSL is the init system where if you just show my screen again quickly, yeah. and I will just do PS. By the way, I'm a huge... I was a huge FreeBSD fan back in you know 20 years ago before we had Gen 2, before Ubuntu and all these new things. That was my go-to. I ran so many servers on FreeBSD, but I feel like it's kind of like all the BSDs are kind of getting left behind in the hype of Linux, which is a shame because they're a great OS, but you know, it's... it's yeah, so get... I, during my Unix year, I was really Solaris, which is... And I also uh, had that. Let's say fork of BSD at the end. I bought so used Solaris. Solaris workstations and had them in my house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Solaris, I mean, I, I mean, Solaris, uh, not containers, but Solaris zones like mm. Dtrace and everything was really coming from Sun. But yeah, but yeah, Unix like that. It's another approach. And BSD, I never really tested, but I know there's a lot of fans at Microsoft also, by the way. But they, for now, they didn't really address the the BSD, let's say, it's, requirements. It's a good it's a good point you make. It's more than just the kernel. It's more than just like taking it and putting it in a package format and shipping it. Like it's there's a lot of complexity to the, like you said, a net system and all this other stuff that would have to. Because I'm sure that if they did it, they'd want it to have feature comparity. So a feature parity. So now it would need, you know, it would need uh, display support. I mean, it's just Docker is the same maybe. way, right? There's still no official Docker free BSD right. Right. build, even though I think there's some other yeah. ones out there. So but what I want to, wanted just to show is like you can see here, like there's an init slash init that is run, but we don't see any other, let's say, process manager like systemd, openrc, right. or others, right? So it's really like, it's something that's WSL launch and that's there, actually. That's a good distinguishing factor too on the difference between a full, like Ubuntu yeah. VM versus a WSL one, which is designed to be, like you said, mini VM, lightweight VM, what's the, whatever the right word is. That This is a, again, an environment almost more for developers or operations and not so much diehard sysadmins that love everything about a particular distribution. So what's crazy now is that like you can have, you basically like, let's just pick a, a pick one, CentOS, Ubuntu, Debian, whatever. Like mm. with Ubuntu, you now have the WSL2 variant. 
you now have the traditional Ubuntu server, Ubuntu desktops that they've had. So WSL2 yeah. is definitely a different feel. And then there's the container-based version of Ubuntu, which is totally different, has, has different files in it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't have systemd again like wsl2 it's important long term for people that are actually playing in this world to understand how linux distributions you you sure you can get debian and all the things now but running it in a vm versus wsl2 versus in a container actually is if you just looked at the file list is quite different there's different mm-hmm. stuff and different processes happening and so the lightest weight of them all is containers like container based distributions are the lightest weight they don't have a kernel they don't have drivers yeah. and then wsl2 has some of that it has display support it has and then when you go to full vm that's the one that's like a gig install with system d doing everything and it has like actual display drivers with tty's and all this stuff that you need and when you're plugging in a vga cable and all that stuff no no true so we have two remaining troubleshooting questions if those people are still hanging around don't know if you have any idea on how to help these people but i I didn't want to ignore them mario asks I've been seeing some weird WSL2 networking issues when I connect to my company VPN. It appears the resolve.conf is not automatically resetting. Nuno, are you aware of any of these networking issues? Yes. I'm, uh, let's say I'm aware. I never face them because I don't have really a VPN for now, yeah. at least. I will have it on my new company. But uh, the VPN is, for now, it's, uh, let's say Microsoft knows about it. And the problem is like whenever you turn on the VPN, like uh, like Mario is saying, then it's not working, actually. Uh, right. the, it doesn't right. refresh itself. So you need to go out of WSL here. Let's say that you put like your, your VPN on. So you go out. Uh, now there's a, a command called shutdown, okay, for WSL. The thing that you must be aware, I can do it because we are ending anyway the tutorial, yeah. but it's like the moment I do that, okay, everything kills, okay? Also, my Docker desktop, as you can see it here, right? Right. So it's killing the micro VM. Actually, in 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 here, if I do a HCS diag, it's a small tool, and I just do list here. You can see WSL micro VM running. You cannot do much with this tool, but at least you can see that it's running here. And this one had another name before the the shutdown. Now that I did the shutdown, if I run again WSL, you should be able to actually connect oh okay so you're basically shutting it down and when you start back up it's pulling in the resolve config file it's like a vm yeah Yeah, because remember the vm the natting is based on the the hyper-v natting right so here you go to hyper-v uh yeah i mean it will switch and to be fair like this isn't oh sorry keep going keep going finish your finish your yeah. yeah, no, no. It's just like, yeah, it's showing, but I know it's tiny, sorry. But here, if you go to the virtual switch manager, you will see the networking and the networking is like internal network, meaning it's like it's breached to your principal let's say, network behind. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then, so when you put like a, a VPN, the NIC is no more like the, the previous one, right? It does a bridge with your VPN and now it's VPN that it's taking the lead. So now you cannot connect anymore because, yeah, it didn't refresh in a sense. So you need really to kill it to recreate it. So the shutdown will do all that normally and you will be able. But it means that if you are working and then your VPN closes and goes up again, it might not work again also. So it's uh, they are working on it. Yeah. Long story. Yeah, it, it, it commented, tons of comments are coming in on this because it's evidently a popular issue. I mean, the reality is that what, no matter what you're doing with VMs or any sort of emulation or network translation, 
on your local machine, like VPNs always become a big problem because everything handles it differently and everything has different support and every VPN does certain things. Like some VPNs, like especially the Cisco Anywhere stuff, it loves to just like break everything and block everything. And like Docker has had this ongoing you know, every year or two, I feel like they something breaks with the VPN on Mac or Windows for Docker just because there's a bunch of NATs, there's a bunch of, you know, synthetic packets moving around to get out your interface and the VPNs all treat it differently. So it is, it I, to be fair to them, it is very complex and I'm sure that they want it to work. It's just a question yeah. of getting it all to work with all VPNs. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's really like, a. I mean, it's impacting WSL, but I would say that it's not really WSL based issue by default. Right. right. Okay. It's impacted by what the VPN does. Yeah. Great answer. I'm impressed by your, your knowledge there. And everybody's in chat is just is very happy oh, they have that. Okay. And then the last question, saving the best for last here. Thank you for being so patient. Uh, Kirill, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. I love WSL a lot, but I must use WSL1 due to I needing IPv6 reachability with my production. Right. And in WSL2, I have only IPv4, private interfaces in Windows. Is there any solution to this issue coming? I don't know. Seriously, I, I'm not in the head of Microsoft. Right. I'm following a lot because like, we have quite a, an awesome community. Like Danny, Jeremy are there. Thank you, my friends. But we have really, let's say, a, a huge community and we are facing it ourselves. Yeah. And like we're providing a lot of feedback to, to Microsoft here and there. They are listening. You can go to you can go to the WSL GitHub page. So it's not development based, but it's for all the issues and everything. But we can check the the link afterwards anyway for the show notes. But uh, the thing is, like you can go there and open the issues. It might look that there's a lot of them, but believe me, they are fixing them. They are looking at them at least. Yeah, it's so, funny. Um, I've been largely had to have largely had to ignore IPv6 from my home. I've been working from home for mm -hmm. a decade, and only until I think it was this year I finally got IPv6 support on my FiOS home connection. So, like, if I go to test IPv6.com, uh, it's like you get ten out of ten. You have IPv6. So now I suddenly am, am interested again in IPv6 because there was this surge in the early to mid two thousands when we were. At the time, we were kind of running out of IPv4 because we didn't have virtualization yet. We didn't have all of this stuff happening where we could NAT everything. And I was really hot and heavy on IPv6. I was telling everybody at our companies that like we had it. It was not an option. It was going to have to happen. Mm -hmm. We're just going to have to do it. And it was such an uphill battle of complexity and compared to IPv4. And now it's like sneaking its way. I mean, obviously there's places like China that have everywhere, but like it's sneaking its way into our lives and cars and things that we don't really think about. But now there is this, like even on Docker Hub, where there's a discussion recently, and I think they either just finished fixing this I, this problem or they are about to, that Docker Hub didn't have IPv6 support. And I think that's either just been resolved recently or it's about to be. I feel like I saw traction in one of the issues because it's on their so roadmap. I, I'm not really following like IPv6, yeah. So I'm not really a network guy to start with. It's something that I, I learned, let's say the minimum to not be blocked by it. So I understand that. Yeah. I understand like uh, fixed IP, dynamic IP, DHCP and so on. So, and I say, I understand. It's not that I know it. Right. <laughs> There's a right. nuance here, right? Works. I mean, that's the kind of the point. It's like, hopefully yeah. it just works and someone else's job. 
to worry about whether it's IPv4. Yeah, in my case, yes, definitely. I know that I will have to go a little bit deeper, especially when you start entering also the, the Kubernetes world, knowing about what are the, the networking interfaces and everything. So it's, uh, okay, you still need to understand at least a little bit more. But yeah, IPv6 for me, it's uh, also, I'm not using it definitively for now, yeah. at least. Yeah. And yeah, and I think people in the comments, you know, it's like it takes IPv6 becomes more important the more people that use it. If you're on exactly. this channel, you're probably someone who's aware of it. So go check your routers and your like, there's actually an option in my router that said enable IPv6 and it wasn't checked. So I checked it and it worked. Like it wasn't turned on by default and then I checked it and it restarted and then everything I, and now when I'm browsing the internet, I can use IPv6, which is transparent and nothing to me that unless things go wrong, right? Then when things go wrong, it it sucks. But anyway, so yeah, it, uh, the more of us that are using it, the more these kind of companies and, and things will care. It's one of those problems with, too with like when IPv6 is used in internally in your company and then everything on the internet is IPv4, like that's not really helping our cases because when the internet, with the internet's IPv6 first, then I think a lot of these internal things and, and toolings, because uh, there's been IPv6 stuff in conversations, especially with related to Docker, not just WSL2, but Docker for ever since the beginning, like Docker adding yeah. support and then like Swarm never got it. The Swarm overlay networks never supported it. And like there's so uh, there's been conversations everywhere when it comes to, technology emulation, virtualization, all those things. It's always been another topic, just like VPNs. Thanks, man. It's been fun. Thank you, Brett. Was was really nice. I hope like first the questions were answered and I didn't say too much bad things. Like wrong, not bad, like wrong things. Wrong like things. tomorrow I have like someone coming at me like, you know, we have to talk like, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's just the nature of the beast. So like whenever I look at last year's videos that I recorded, I'm like, man, half that stuff isn't true anymore. So, yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah, that's crazy. But yeah, so, you're right. No, but thank you very much. Yeah. And just to tell everybody as we're wrapping up here, go check out Nuno's. He's on Twitter. Go check him out there. He writes blog posts at WSL.dev. Go check that out. He's got a new job. You want to talk about your new job? Yeah, why not? I'm joining Susie Rancher in November. So, yeah, that's your, yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. a long way. That's a long way coming. Maybe for another discussion once, like where WSL actually centrally wrote me. WSL, Docker, the Cloud Native Foundation, of course, but like the Cloud Native environment community mm -hmm. really, let's say, enabled me to talk to you, talk to Nigel, which are my captains. So I will make a tweet later because I did I did take a, a print screen today about one one meeting that we had. So I have like four persons, three of them are captains. The first is me, of course, but like three are captains and you are the reason I'm here today. Like literally. Thanks to that, thanks to that, I went through now blogging a lot, knowing a lot. And finally, I've been hired by Susie. Yeah. So I will start finally, not only blogging, it will be also my passion becoming a little bit my job. But your so job. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's awesome. Yeah, that's the best part. My passion was Docker and then it became my job as, <laughs> as just like that. And I, I feel the same way. Like the, all, everyone, you, everyone else in the community that I've met uh, over the last five, six years has just been fantastic i i love this cloud native community and i don't talk i don't thank it enough because there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of hard work at a lot of companies sure. and people that are doing it as a hobby like you were doing that weren't 
fully invested as a day job, but they cared about this community and the future of tech, essentially. So I really appreciate you and all the work you do because I I love content creators because being one of them, I know how hard it is. I know how much work you have to put in. And I know not only the pressure of constantly making content, but also that we all do it. I feel like it's an extremely selfless act right? Because you're doing it to help others. Sure. I mean, I make money on my courses, but like the passion has to be there first, right? You have to want to share. And this community can often be like 99% of the time can be kind. And obviously there's always trolls out there, but I really get a lot of- Yeah, but that's why my blog has no comments, for example. (laughs) And that's, again, the blog, it's not my really blog. It's like, thanks again to the, one of the, I will say my best friends, really, I never met him, but he's really one of my best friends, Brian Kittleson from Microsoft. And he really enabled me to reach another level about blogging and everything. And you're totally right. Like when you, I read blog until the end, because I know how much the person had to go through, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's just to write it just to, to ensure that it's not wrong or. And I'm a horrible writer. Like I need every spell check, grammar check, grammarly. I I mean, I can make 10 videos easier than I can make one blog post, it seems like. I don't know what it is about writing, but it I'm, I obsess over it. Like like you said, every paragraph, rewriting it, changing yeah. titles. I have a blog post that we just are about to launch about basically what is DevOps. And, right. and it's coming out with Udemy. Udemy is going to be putting it on their blog soon. So I'll be telling everybody when that launches. But it's like, I think it's 3,000 words. It's long. And it isn't because I'd want, I went on and on. It's like I wanted it to be as information-packed as possible and, and actionable. So I actually have right. – uh, we're going to be talking about it on a different show when it all happens. But I actually created like Brett's Are You DevOps Enough survey. Like it's basically <laughs> four – I think it's three or four nice. different subjects. And like you rate yourself. And it's like a super simple like one or two or three options. And you basically give yourself a point list. And then I tell you at the end, like, you know, okay, you're just starting with DevOps. You're mm. definitely growing in DevOps or like your team or community or organization right, is right, leading right. in uh-huh. DevOps. Because I've worked with enough companies uh, over the last 10 years. I've worked with dozens and dozens of companies and I mm. have, you know, hundreds of thousands of students that all share their stories with me. So I feel like I have a little bit of a pulse on what is the average DevOpsness of a company? Like what are... What are companies today, like we all see the news, we all see the blogs that are like amazing DevOps, right? We have everything perfect. We're like Netflix. We have all automated. But most of us are not that. Most of us are far from that. And I wanted to give people a sense of like, where am I really? And does, and how Mm. much does that matter? And what should I look forward to? And anyway, that like, if I'm going to, I do like one blog post a year and this is the one. This is the one. I didn't, let's say, in the blog post of WSL Dev, then I have like my own blog posts. I have other blog posts that have been actually featured by Susie Rancher, actually. And then other sites have also my blog posts. Do you keep like a central storage of all this? I mean, you're yes, Twitter. for my MVP, for Microsoft MVP, I, yeah, just, oh, I have oh, okay. to. So like a spreadsheet? I have there, but I, I will write, I will write, I will give you some some links that are not in WSL Dev indeed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it's, uh, no, but writing, the thing is like, once I'm done writing, I go to my blog post myself and try to reproduce it from scratch again. Yeah. To I, see I, if I miss, I mean, it's just the process is just like, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. 
Well, thank you again for what you do and all the work you do. And now you. you get to be paid for it. So <laughs> that's exciting. And thanks to all you that came and watched. And if you're listening on the yep. audio podcast, thanks for listening to that. Now that we're back in the game with the podcast, uh, I'm excited to get that going again because that was a lot of fun. And it's surprising how many people I would meet and say, I listen to your podcast. We'll leave you all with that. Again, thanks so much for being on the show. I'll definitely have you on, we'll have you on again. Another six months, whatever. Another, another couple of weeks. Who knows? Everybody yeah. will have to come back and just find out. All right. And again, thank you so much to your Patreon subscribers. You are the people that I appreciate because you're willing to give me a little bit of your hard-earned money to keep this show alive and to keep the podcast going. Ciao, everybody. Ciao, everybody.